Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, am I being that guy if I say the book was better? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. And today we are joined by Father Carter Griffin of the Archdiocese of Washington. Father Griffin, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Father Griffin is a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington and the rector of the St. John Paul II Seminary in Washington, D.C., and the director of seminarians for the Archdiocese. He has previously been the director of priestly vocations for the Archdiocese as well, and is the author of several books, including Why Celibacy? Reclaiming the Fatherhood of the Priest, and an upcoming book, Forming Fathers, Seminary Wisdom for Every Priest. Father Griffin, thanks again for joining us. Certainly. Thank you. And in previous episodes, we've talked about the notion of discernment of spirits in general, which can apply to a lot of facets of life. But today we want to get into more discerning a vocation and the idea of vocation, the way it impacts you in forming future priests. So could you walk us through a little bit of what we mean when we say vocation? Like, obviously, we don't mean going to a trade school and learning how to be an electrician, right? Right. That's another use of the word vocation. But really, the original use, the word itself means a calling. So it's a calling to do something that is a calling specifically from the Lord to fulfill whatever purpose he has for us in our lives. And there are different levels of vocation, in a sense. And there's also a different kind of chronology to vocation. There are some spiritual writers who say that our first our first vocation is existence, right? I mean, that we've been called into existence, that God created us and he didn't create others. And so there's a sense of sort of embracing that call to be a human being. And then, of course, as Christians, our, our calling to be holy, to be saints, and our calling of baptism, uh, the fundamental vocation that underlies everything. It's something that God has planned for us. It's a beautiful plan. It's something that he wants to do with our lives that is remarkable and that is fulfilling for us and that brings joy to us and to others. And it's something specific. And everyone's vocation is, in a sense, unique, even if there are certain categories of vocation. There's a certain calling that he has given to each one of us. And a big part of our life, especially earlier on in life, is sort of discovering what that is and following it. And there are some levels of vocation that are unique, and there are some that are universal, right, that don't even have to be discerned, especially in, uh, I think it's Lumen Gentium, where the church talks about the universal call to holiness and states that more clearly, which is extended to all people, right? It is. And it's something that I'm, I'm afraid, you know, here we are 50 or 60 years after the council, sometimes it can roll off the tongue a little bit too easily now. What was at one time seen as a kind of bold and kind of even spiritually aggressive response to an early understanding in the church that every single Christian is called to be a saint. I mean, Paul speaks about the saints, you know, in Rome or whatever, that that strong calling is something that in in large parts, not entirely, but in large part was, had been lost. And so there was something really beautiful and fresh about it uh, in the 1960s. And so it's like coming to a, a new appreciation of a beautiful piece of art or something that you see it and you try to see it as if for the first time in order to be struck by its beauty again. I do think the conversation needs to start there because sometimes there could be a sense of almost boredom with that. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'm supposed to call to be a saint, but what am I really supposed to call? You know, and it's like, well, you've missed the whole point because like, that really has to be the foundation of everything. So you're right. I mean, it's, it is the baseline and Lumen Gentium speaks about it very beautifully. And then within that, or I guess as part of pursuing that call to holiness, we have kind of more recently adopted or maybe deployed another understanding of vocation within that. Uh, which has to do with particular states of life, right? Right. So over the years in the early church, there some of these are very like the priesthood is is pretty evident even in the scriptures when you read about the apostles and and their uh, the breaking of the bread and the teaching, you know, and then according to the the creation of the diaconate so that the priests could focus more specifically on the preaching of the word and on the Eucharist, and then the overseers, the episcopoi, the bishops are also found in the scriptures and really early, early on in the church. Uh, within a hundred years, the death of Christ, uh, the resurrection of Christ, we have those three different orders, holy orders, pretty clearly outlined. Within the first few centuries of, of Christianity, something that was a little bit different, which was not necessarily with holy orders, but was a life set apart in what we would now call religious life, began really with the desert hermits in, in Egypt and, and working through St. Benedict and St. Basil and all these great the monks and then the wonderful proliferation of the religious orders through the centuries, the friars and the Dominicans and the Franciscans and others, the Jesuits later on, and literally hundreds or thousands of orders over the centuries. And Lumen Gentium speaks about that very beautifully as well. And sort of the particular charisms of these different orders and the different reasons for religious life, that came a little bit later on. And so that began this 
more crystallized distinction of Christians among the lay faithful, the religious, and those who are in holy orders. Got it. I know when I was first exposed to this sort of way of thinking about what am I called to do in life, I was starting to think, okay, well, I was I was trying to compare them. And I've seen other people try to compare them and say, okay, well, was one better or more perfect than another? Is that the case? And to what extent is that helpful for an individual's discernment? Yeah. I think the answer is yes and no. On one hand, the church has consistently talked about the greater excellence of certain ways of life, the greater degree of perfection. It's an objective perfection, for example, of the religious life, right? And it's sometimes called a state of perfection. And while the church has, in more recent decades, shied away from that kind of terminology, I think because it can be a little bit confusing, frankly, for individuals, it never has been repudiated, right? There is a state of perfection, which is religious life, because of the way that they are, it's the sequela Christi, the following of Christ in this very explicit, literal way especially through the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and living those in a radical way, that is, there's also kind of combined with that is an understanding of the contemptus mundi, right? The contempt of the world, the rejection of the world, living in a sense of the life of beatitude and as much as we can in a fallen world now. And being an example and being a witness to that, being a pointer to that is one of the great privileges of the religious man or woman. So that is sometimes called a state of perfection. And celibacy or virginity has also been seen as sort of this higher way, this, this more sure road to a life of holiness. But I think one of the reasons why some of that objective terminology is uh, sort of soft-pedaled a little bit today is because I think too often in our highly individualistic and sort of literalistic age, those things are taken on as like, well, if that's the best thing, then that's what I want to do. You know, that's what I ought to do. Whereas the answer needs to be, what does God want me to do? Because for example, it takes us the celibacy question, you know, or probably even religious life, but to sort of see it as maybe a better road. But if you are driving on a better road in a jalopy, you know, <laughs> I'd prefer to go on a less perfect road, you know, in a Maserati, right? And then the question is like, not what's the better road, but what am I called to be? And that's the car, right? I mean, that, it, that's what we're made to do. And so subjectively, the point is vocation is, is this is one of the reasons why calling vocation simply those uh, different, you know, consecrated life or, or holy orders or something like that is a mistake because really each one of us has this individual vocation and to find what that is and to travel along that road, that's our surest way to holiness. So in a sense, I, I guess the only answer has to be yes and no, right? And, 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 and fundamentally for us individually, what matters most is what is what obviously God is calling us to do. So your call to priesthood then has this kind of unique character almost that not every other diocesan priest has. Is that kind of what you're getting at? I guess so. I mean, in the sense that every priest, every married person, every religious is called to live uniquely the life that God has called them to live. And that means, you know, a family, a husband or a wife, right, is called to live that marriage with that person, with those children. A priest is called to live in the, in the way he's directed by his bishop and the people that he serves and so forth. So I think that's part of it, the uniqueness of it. But also the uniqueness of it is that, of course, we're made fundamentally to love, right? That's that's what our purpose is in life. We're engines made to love. And to, to fuel the engine well means to love in such a way that is always going to be, there's a unique expression of, of, of all love. And one of the mistakes that can be made in a vocational discernment is sort of for it to become a little bit, I suppose, solipsistic, you know, we're just kind of focused in on ourselves. What is my vocation, my this, my that, right? My road to holiness and, you know, my seeking of salvation. And that's true, but it can't be independent of sort of the outward focus of all vocations. Our vocations are not only for us, but for others and for the building up of the church. And so that uniqueness of how we live that out in our, in our service to others, whether as a hermit or as a bishop of a diocese of 2 million souls, you know, or as a married person with 10 children or a married person who can't have children, all of those are unique ways and flowerings of this capacity to love. I love that you worked in the title for our podcast into your answer. I didn't pay him to say that, by the way, listeners. <laughs> Okay, so when an individual is discerning a vocation, can you walk us through kind of what the general stages look like? Uh, I know you have more experience dealing with people who are discerning vocation of priesthood. So maybe in broad strokes, what, what does that generally look like when somebody goes from not discerning a vocation to discerning a vocation? Great. It's true that I, I work with a lot of guys who are discerning the, the priesthood, but of course, in the context of that, you end up working with a lot of guys who think they're called to the priesthood and who aren't. And so de facto, you're working with a lot of guys who are not called to the priesthood too. Like religious me. life, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, religious life, married life, and neither, you know, and sort of the, the life of the baptized, right? And, and how those different expressions of, of love can be carried out in a certain person's own existence. 
it begins fundamentally with asking the question, right? And what is my vocation, right? You know, the only one who can answer that is the Lord. Others can help you. They can be counselors and spiritual counselors. I mean, spiritual directors, you know, parish priests, confessors, whatever. And, you know, friends, family members, all of those can help. They can assist. They can, they can see, they can tell you what they see, but it has to begin by asking the Lord. In prayer. And that means we have to have a life of prayer, right? So I think the discernment of a vocation always begins with an interior life. It begins by having the building blocks of allowing grace to start to kind of course through our lives. And what does that mean? Well, remotely, sort of the broad sense is means we're starting to live a life that is in conformity with what we believe as Christians. And that means that the moral struggle is an important part of vocational discernment, right? If we're living in a way that's vicious or angry or sensuous or, you know, avaricious or whatever, and, and then we're wondering why we're not hearing what the Lord is calling us to, well, maybe we need to start there and our own interior conversion, repent and believe in the gospel. Coterminous with that would be having the habits of prayer, which is first of all, the sacraments, you know, receiving the sacraments regularly. I mean, obviously the Eucharist confession, I find to be a really important kind of piece of this. Confession is not just about receiving the forgiveness of the Lord, but also receiving kind of new insights and new strength from him. Regular confession monthly, I mean, maybe every two weeks, maybe every week, you know, for people or more often if needed, you know, if, if there's a struggle of some kind and receiving that forgiveness over and over the mercy of God. So the sacraments, having a life of prayer, which is not just prayers, you know, but prayer. We maybe have our prayers and liturgy of the hours and novenas or whatever it might be. Obviously, the rosary has the first, I think, a special place in kind of that constellation of devotions. But then there has to be time for mental prayer. And that might be, you know, and getting some help with that. There are wonderful books out there. There are people who can help us do that. It might be as little as five minutes a day at, at the beginning, you know? I mean, but five minutes is mathematically, literally infinitely better than zero minutes, you know? So it's like, so if, you, if you're zero minutes, let's start with five, you know? But I think there's no reason why a lot of people, my opinion is the majority of people can't do half an hour or even an hour of prayer a day. It might take some sacrifices, but people make sacrifices for all kinds of things. They make time for stuff and to make time for prayer. So anyway, that's where it's got to begin. Hopefully having some exterior input, meaning I think primarily spiritual reading is the primary source of receiving sort of exterior formation for most people, because there's just amazing books out there of all kinds, about our Lord, about Our Lady, about prayer, about everything under the sun, and learning how to read the scriptures, and then learning how to do Lectio Divina, praying with the scriptures. So all of that, and then receiving kind of exterior lights through spiritual reading, and then perhaps with spiritual direction, which I think is very helpful for somebody who's discerning a vocation. So all of that is kind of the, in a sense, the, the prequel to the actual process of discerning. And then for the discernment itself, again, we're starting by asking the question, you know, what are you calling me to, Lord? You're asking yourself, you know, what's the glove that fits the hand of my soul, right? What is it that sort of makes sense? What is attractive to me? I think we're looking into our desires. I know that's some of the things that you were talking about with Father Gallagher, you know, and what and, and discerning those desires, are those desires from the Lord or not from the Lord? Are they just kind of like whims and fancies? Or are they even from the evil one? Or are they, in fact, something that get, get, that gives me that true and genuine inner peace that seems to be from the Lord and it's guiding me towards him? So you're looking at your desires, you're looking at your abilities. I mean, not everybody has the ability to do every vocation and all of those different special vocations, as it were, you know, priesthood, religious life, marriage, all of those have particular kind of individual requirements, you know, that, that somebody would need. There are other details too. We could look at it. For example, if the possibility of priesthood or religious life is very real, then there comes an important moment when you have to decide to stop dating, assuming you're that age right? Because you have to kind of open the space to discern the charism of celibacy or virginity. So the first stage is interior life. The second stage is kind of grappling with this in prayer. And then the third stage, you need to talk to somebody, right? It can't just all be done inside. You have to talk to the vocation director. You have to talk to, you know, the religious board. You got to, you got to ask the girl out on a date, whatever it is, you know, you got to, you got to, it has to get outside of yourself and then it has to be ratified. And ultimately we're not the ones who unilaterally announced to others what our vocation is. A seminarian who comes in and announces to the church that he's going to be ordained a priest is probably not going to be ordained a priest, right? Because there has to be that humility of saying, I'm ready to do this, I'm willing to do this, but the church has to say yes to him, you know, just as the girl has to say yes to the boy or the boy has to say yes to the girl, right? So there has to be that reception from another of that call. And then, of course, there's the formation and the call and further discernment and, and ultimately, you know, ordination or final vows or marriage or whatever it is. That is a really helpful survey of the whole thing. You know, what you said about individualism a little bit before and what you said just now about going out to other people, whether it be a spiritual director, vocation director, or asking somebody out on a date, that sort of community level step 
kind of strikes me as really contrasting with kind of how people in a secular context think about what they want to do in life, because it tends to be more top down or centralized. I am this now, I'm going to do this versus, yeah, I'm going to bring this thing that I've been feeling and that I've been discerning to somebody else for, like you said, ratification. And when it comes to the community's ability to do that or to foster that, I think that that varies widely from place to place. So what do you think is are some of the best ways for a community to develop that culture of fostering that notion of vocation? Maybe we should start with a family first, and then maybe yeah. we can go to parish after that. Yeah, sure. My experience with the seminarians is that it's not universal. I mean, everyone has you know kind of unique aspects to their call. But when an important part of the fabric of a family is receiving children as blessings from the Lord, right? that these children, these are not, it's not children that I made with my wife, right? These are children that the Lord gave me through my wife or through my, through my husband, right? And that when, when that approach, when there's that humble receptivity to the children that God gives me, whether it's, whether it's none or one or 15, you know, that that humble receptivity automatically changes the way we approach these children. They're no longer projects of mine. They're not commodities of mine. They're not individuals that I can sort of vicariously work, you know, my dreams through. You know, I always wanted my kids to be, you know, doctors and lawyers. Well, one of them wants to be a rancher. You know, what do you do with that? <laughs> so that that you need to sort of have that that basic sort of let's allow them to live their own lives. Um, obviously, our job is to help form them, uh, form them, first of all, as human beings, second of all, as Christians, men and women who are on their way towards beatitude, towards becoming brothers and sisters of mine in the kingdom of heaven, right? So there's that humility that begins at the basis of the culture of vocations. And then it's actively fostering this. It's this sense of excitement with your children that, you know, wow, this, this is awesome. God has got some incredible plan for you. I mean, who knows? It might involve a lot of suffering. It might involve, you know, a lot of challenges ahead, but it's going to be something he wants to do something radical through you. And when little children hear that, and it becomes just part of the warp and woof of sort of daily life in a family. You're building a culture of vocations. And then practically speaking, you know, what do you do? I mean, you have hopefully maybe friendships with priests and religious. Certainly you're bringing them to church and, and they're being introduced to them. You're, you know, trying to be attentive to what Catholic school they're going to or a CCD program or whatever. And you're kind of making sure that it's as best as you can, one that is fostering this attitude towards vocations. And there's a real human face that gets associated with it. So they already have, in a sense, the human face of marriage hopefully with their parents, you know, and then there's the human face of, of a girl who sees, you know, a religious sister. And it's like, well, I, I can imagine myself doing that. The parents are consciously trying to foster these opportunities to make these different vocations a real possibility. And they're learning about it too. They're learning about religious life. They're learning about priesthood. They're learning about, you know, the nobility of marriage, whatever it is. And so it just becomes a very natural thing. That's the bottom line that I've noticed in these families that are producing. I mean, there's one family that you know who's got two priests and one seminarian on the way to priesthood. It's just a very natural thing in that family. It's just like, yeah, this is kind of an awesome thing where we talk about it around the dinner table. And not every family is going to have, you know, three priests and a religious sister as part of that. <laughs> but it's, it just goes to show that the naturalness of a supernaturally oriented family can do wonders for the vocational discernment of their children. Yeah. And it's okay for families to invite priests and religious brothers and sisters over for dinner. Like they're, they're allowed to do that and say yes. To they're allowed to do that. We can't always say yes to it. Unfortunately, it'd be a lot of fun if we could always say yes, but I mean, it's, they certainly can and should. And, and I know a lot of priests who just love to be invited over because they love to see the kids. They love to talk to the parents. They love to kind of see the homes where their parishioners live. They maybe bless the home, say the blessing over the meal before they, and it's just, it's a very natural thing. And it's the integration of the, the natural and spiritual fatherhood. Natural fathers are also spiritual fathers. But I mean, there's that, there's a kind of a, an alliance that happens there, which I think is, is very powerful. And then at the parish level, same question, basically. How can parishes reinforce what families are doing? I think it's a lot of the same stuff, right? So it begins with kind of that humility of recognizing that I'm not out there to try to, to make these kids priests or religious or even get to you know, make sure they get married or something like that. It's that humility of recognizing that these are all gifts and blessings from God, all of the people that I'm called to serve. But especially when you're talking about the young people, whether it's the parish school or the different religious ed programs, things that are done during mass, Sunday school, whatever it might be. All of these, I think we need to look at through a vocational lens. It's the most important thing that is first decision that these children are going to have to make one day. And a lot of times that decision is a vocation, you know, that discernment is preceded by important decisions they make early on about the friends they make, about the schools they go to, about the, you know, the, the kind of life they, they live. And so forming children, forming young people, teenagers, young adults in a way that really inspires them 
to have this desire to know God's will for them. And, you know, one thing I often say with the seminarians is like, this is supposed to be a place where you not only can clearly discern God's will, but also grow in the freedom to say yes to it. And that freedom to say yes to it is sometimes maybe the missing piece. You know, we can talk a lot about vocation, but it's forming in them kind of the courage and the kind of the character to be able to say, okay, this is what I think God is calling me to do. And I'm going to jump in and trust the Lord is that he's going to catch me. And that's in some ways a far harder thing to form. Yeah, that really resonates with uh, with my experience. When I was in Dawson Seminary, and up until that point, I did not feel that kind of freedom to say yes or no to anyone anyone calling, really until after the first year of seminary. And yeah, so that, that absolutely makes sense to me. Great. Well, uh, Father Griffin, anything more to add to our initial intro to discerning vocation? I think one thing that might be helpful for young people to hear, especially who may be listening is that, you know, we live in an age, it's a very prideful age, I think. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that it's that every, everyone is prideful today, but the momentum of the age is one of self-aggrandizement. There are incentives to do that. Yeah. It's like kind of the social framework for a kind of modesty, you know, in life is kind of gone. And so, and even kind of the fixation on self-fulfillment, which, you know, I mean, I understand there's a, there's kind of a healthier understanding of self-fulfillment. This is not a kind of masochistic sort of, you know, approach to, to the spiritual life. We're not supposed to be miserable or anything like that. But if our primary and really our only focus is on ourselves, then we're going to kind of miss the boat. That's the first thing. The second thing, the follow-up is if we actually want to be joyful, if we actually want to be fulfilled, then the recipe is not going to be serving ourselves. It's going to be serving others. And so to have that confidence that the Lord wants to use us as good and faithful servants, but as servants, we actually become more fully sons and daughters, right? That we become more fully filled with the love of God. The happiest people in the world are, are saints. You know, the happiest people in the world are those who have listened to the call of the Father and responded. And so even if, they, if their lives have been filled with all kinds of maybe tragedy and suffering and sacrifice or whatever it might be, whatever the Lord may have in store for them, they end up being the happiest people alive. And those who are kind of selfishly living only for themselves are the most miserable people alive. So I think just having the confidence, having the courage to jump out and say yes to the Lord and to take a risk. It may not work out even, you know, it may, it may be, maybe it's something they say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give this a try. This may be what the Lord is calling me to do. But just that act of trust, that act of faith will be highly rewarded by the Lord. So I think that's kind of just the main, the overarching thing that I would say to somebody who may be listening. All of these options that we're talking about are all good things. They're all gifts. So when yeah. you're, when you're discerning, you're not discerning between a good and a bad. And if you get it wrong, you've chosen evil. You're discerning between goods. So you're always only going to ever choose a good. Now, one of those is probably better for you, but. Right. And it's funny you say that because one of the things that I'm looking for in the seminary, you know, a lot of people come to the seminary and discern out. And that to us is, is kind of a win, right? It means that somebody has discern that this is not their calling and and hopefully they've received some good formation that they carry on with them afterwards. But one of the key things that I'm looking for when somebody believes that he's called to leave the seminary is not, now I have this love for marriage and I don't really, you know, the priesthood is not as interesting to me anymore. I mean, there's a sense in which there's some truth to that, but what you really want is somebody leaving saying, I actually love the priesthood now more than when I came in, you know, and yet this is not my calling. There's almost like a subtle note of sadness in that, you know, saying like, gee, this is a beautiful thing. It would have been awesome if I'd been called to that, but I'm not, I'm actually called to marriage. And that's really where I'm going to find my fulfillment. That's a sign of a good discernment. I think of somebody who's, who's leaving the seminary, same thing with prayer. If somebody's prayer is in shambles, like that's not the time to leave the seminary, you know, like you're pray, <laughs> you leave the seminary, hopefully your prayer is better than it's ever been. And your love for priesthood is, is greater than it's ever been, you know, and yet the Lord is calling you out. Like those are signs that we're looking for, which is what you just said. Like you're discerning between goods, not between a good and an evil. And you don't want those scrubs anyway. <laughs> no, but uh, another takeaway, if you're listening to this and you're not already in a vocation, there is a good chance that you are called to one of these to either religious life or priesthood or married life, or possibly single life as well. Uh, so we'll have links uh, in the episode notes, not only to Father Griffin's books, but to different sites where you can learn more about each of those vocations as well. So, Father Griffin, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Andrew. Lord, you have been our refuge through all generations. Before the mountains were born, the earth and the world brought forth. From eternity to eternity, you are God. You turn humanity back into dust, saying, Return, you children of men.
And we are back with Kara Bach. Kara, welcome back. Always good to be here. And we're talking about Children of Men, the 1992 novel by P.D. James, and also the 2006 movie based on the novel, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. We originally planned on just talking about the movie, and then we watched the movie, and we realized it was way too depressing. On its <laughs> it's own. a rough hang. It's a rough movie. So we also read the book that it's based on, which I didn't even know. Kara, I'm glad you told me, because I didn't even know the movie was based on a book. And it turns out the book's way better. <laughs> I gotta say, I feel a little punked by the movie, because I'd heard about the book, and that the book had some like interesting Christian themes. And then I watched the movie, and I'm like, this does not seem like it was made from a Christian perspective at all. <laughs> yeah. Like, we need to go. I was like, let's, let's just wash this out of our mouths and go read the book. So for those of you who have seen the movie but haven't read the book and are interested in what the book is about and kind of what's similar and what's different, what's similar is that you're in a very dystopian future where there are no children. You've got a main character, Theo. I'd say the name is about the end of the similarities. (laughs) And (laughs) it is a journey about what the world looks like when – there's no hope because there's no children and there's no future, right? Like there's an end to humanity that is within sight. I'd say that in general, the movie's vision of what that looks like is a lot more violent and a lot more depressing in a way. Overwhelmingly dark for the, the majority of the movie. Yeah. The main difference to me is that the book, it's not that there's more hope. It just feels like... It's not violent. It's more that people have sort of slipped into a malaise. And then on the edges, you have people who are really viscerally grappling with a lack of children. Yeah. And so in both stories, in a society where nobody's been able to have children for over 20 years, finally, in secret, there is a woman who has conceived, and it's up to the main character, Theo, to get her to safety, to have her child away from the chaotic elements in society and away from the totalitarian government. Is that a fair? Yeah. But yeah. Am I, am I being that guy? If I say the book was better, Kara? No, I (laughs) I don't want to be that 100% agree. It's funny because I feel like a lot of people really like this movie. My husband really likes this movie. It's very well made. It's extremely well made. It's beautiful. It's very compelling. And I think there's two really long, like single shot scenes that are, like cinematically incredible. But I feel like sort of thematically, the point that is being made, you're always going to be able to explore more in a book. But I just feel like the delta is quite large between the two of them. Yeah. And the the movie thinks it's being deep when really it's just kind of influenced by hippies. (laughs) (laughs) There are way too many hippies. White people with dreadlocks is always a bad, oh, going to be a bad place to start. But. The midwife character, Miriam, who is in both the book and the movie. In the movie, she is like a middle-aged white woman with dreadlocks. And she's not the only white person with dreadlocks in the movie for some reason. I was bothered by this, but I wasn't actually angry about it until in the book, that midwife character is actually described as black and probably Jamaican. So presumably, it's a black woman with dreadlocks, which would make more sense. It feels like less, I don't know, culturally appropriative. Right. <laughs> no, it's like, it's very strange. Yes. I think the first like major point of divergence is just why the crisis is there to begin with. You know, in the movie, it's actually not really clear. And I guess perhaps now I'll insert spoiler alert. We're talking about both the movie and the book in deep Blanket spoilers. Uh, detail. In the movie... It's not clear until you hear from Miriam, who is a midwife, or you know, she was a midwife when there were children to be midwifing. And she had the experience of watching more and more women come in and miscarrying. It's not super explicit that like maybe it's something happening with the women, but fertility has been impacted. In the book, it's explicitly that the male sperm count has been decimated. And so basically, no kids are being had because guys are infertile. Right. Which I think is a very, they just like gives a different kind of character to the crisis. Because to me, I feel like in a way, I almost roll my eyes. Like, of course, a guy who rewrote (laughs) the script made it like a women's problem. Yeah, P.D. James, the author, her name is Phyllis. So the original story... 
the more Christian story was written by a woman in which men are infertile. Yeah. And the the movie which was rewritten was, yeah, I think you're right, rewritten by male writers, uh, in which case women are infertile. And it's really not treated as that big of a, like an issue after that. They don't ask why. It's just, that's the premise of the movie and that's it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I feel like in the movie, they sort of hint at this idea of uh, people having to like go get tested for their fertility. In the book, it's much more explicit that the only ones who are tested are people who are thought to be desirable genetically. So if you're somehow feeble or had a childhood illness or something like that, like you wouldn't even be tested for your fertility because nobody wants your fertility, apparently. But it's also interesting because I I think the impact of having men be the ones who sort of lose their ability to sire children, to me, just hits in a different way for, I feel like psychologically for society, that the idea that like men losing their ability to like be fathers, more so than like, obviously women... As a new mom, I feel the the loss of fertility, but I just think it kind of hits societally in a different way, having it be men. Yeah, Kara, I didn't realize until after the fact when you were telling me about your experience of reading this. But so the, the novel takes place in, it was written in 1992, so it takes place in the future, but its future is 2021. And it takes place last year where the eventual new first baby that is had, the baby is born within a month of your actual real-life baby being born yeah. in November? <laughs> I know. I, the whole time I was reading, I'm like, this is so surreal. Like, I, uh, I also, like, cannot imagine the throughout the book, they're urging her to go to a hospital. I'm like, I can't imagine being like, nope, I'm going to birth this baby out in the woods. Yep. Mm-mm, mm-mm. As somebody who was induced early, that definitely would not have happened, so... <laughs> Thank you, modern medicine. But to the point about like, the book is far more Christian. And it's like clearly a sort of Marian illusion that she's giving birth eventually in the woods, but even just like away from technology and all of these things. And kind of the fact that it's a hidden birth, there's a lot of things about it that have to be kept secret, are clearly evoking Marian and savior motif. Which they're very consciously aware of, because the characters make references to that in kind of an unflattering way, in a very like cynical, ironic way. So no one's coming to this epiphany, I guess pun intended. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so and obviously the title of the book taken from scripture, the phrase children of men occurs multiple places in scripture, but fortunately, they actually quote the passage that she means it to make my research a little bit easier. Uh, It's from Psalm 90, verse three, which we read at the beginning. In our translations, in the New American Bible translation, the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, we don't say children of men in that one. We say children of Adam or mortals. Mm. And, you know, it's turned back children of men. But I looked up the Greek and it says huioi anthropon, which, as we all know, is children of men or children of humans. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> Hats off to the, uh, what I assume is the, uh, what's it called? The translation? The Septuagint or the, the, no, no, oh, the, oh, the uh, King James? King James. The King, yeah. Yeah. yeah, hats off to the King James Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess they got that one right. So, the, and, and the movie couldn't ignore that because if they want to base the story off that and they wanted to keep the title, they had to retain some sort of scriptural religious element, which they do, but they dilute it with a lot of kind of syncretic postmodern hippy dippy spiritualism, where it's just, it's more broadly about some kind of nebulous faith which is conflated with hope and there's not really a distinction between faith and hope I don't I don't think the book is far more interesting to my mind so yeah. the person who's pregnant in the book is actually Julian who is not at all like Julian in the movie she is a activist let's say but you know certainly not the hard charging kind <laughs> of person that Julianne Moore's character is yeah she's definitely you know softer and like she's the one who gets pregnant and it's notable that she's so she is definitely a you know believing Christian. One of the other five fishes, which that's a similarity, the name of it being fishes in the book. One of the other main, let's call him activists. He's a priest or formerly a priest. Yeah, like a former Anglican priest. Yeah. It seems as though the Anglican church has been gutted. It seems as though uh, P.D. James is making some kind of commentary about 
the faith not really being practiced anymore within the confines of the church. So he, the character Luke, used to be ostensibly like a very devout priest, seems to still be sort of practicing on the side, like him and Julian at one point. It seems like they're going to have a mass. Yeah, they do. Where, you know, they have sort of a mass in the wilderness with just the meager bread and wine they have available. Which, again, Anglican, you know, probably not really a mass, but as far as I understand it, they're, you know, they're doing their best. So it turns out that you're originally led to believe that the father is Julian's husband. Also, big twist, Julian is certainly no Virgin Mary. Right. (laughs) Which she admits, like, she's she's not obstinately upholding the ideals of the sexual revolution or anything. She's very apologetic. She calls it a sin. She's repentant. So, you know, say that much for her. Definitely. So, yeah, you're led to believe it's her husband's child, but it turns out it's actually the priest's child. Which I don't know if he's ever repentant. It's – well, because he dies before it's revealed. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, it's a good question. He had epilepsy as a child, which is why his sperm was never tested by the government because they just dismissed him as being unfit, which is why this went unnoticed in the story. Which – I think gets to both why Julian got pregnant in the book and also maybe indirectly why the sterility crisis happened in the first place. Because Julian in the book also has something that makes her deemed unfit. She has this deformed hand, which is some congenital birth defect. So this child is born of two people who are in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of society, not really. If you want to ensure survival, these are not your ideal candidates. On the one hand, it's it's a repudiation of eugenics. Not that yeah. I think eugenics was like a thing in the 90s. But I mean, maybe it's worth noting P.D. James wrote and published this in her 70s. So I think she was born in the 1920s, maybe had more experience with the kind of idealism. And I think we see some of that today in the sort of techno optimization of the body that is very popular you know i call it bro science um (laughs) there's just like you know there's a lot of people online who are like trying to perfect themselves um and it feels a little bit like it's kind of both a callback and maybe a little bit of a premonition of some of this is just like human nature i think to try and be like perfecting of ourselves and thinking that the human person can be perfected In a way, I feel like she's sort of making the Christian repudiation of we're not meant to be seeking physical perfection. Right. We have to embrace our weakness. Yeah. Yeah. And and that society is overlooking these people. I mean, in the same way that nobody thought that the Christ child would be born of some lowly Jewish woman, right? He was supposed to be of the line of kings. Now, he is of the line of kings, but... It's like unexpected that he would come into the world as a vulnerable child, yeah. you know, born in a manger. This feels like a analogous coming from an unexpected place where nobody would be looking for him. And I think the focus of that society in the book on what we can control, you know, the, the mantra that the, the government uses is safety, comfort, pleasure, something like that. Security, comfort, pleasure. And as long as it provides those three things for the people, that's good enough for them to live with until the end event inevitably comes. That sort of mindset of, you know, we can control our surroundings, that's a big emphasis early in the book when you're getting introduced to the main character who's writing these diary entries. That's part of how the story unfolds. He's a historian, and he's sort of a modernist, rationalist guy who, I don't know, looks down his nose at, at faith and tradition because we can, you know, we can understand these things. And the and he says, the worst part about this crisis was we wanted to figure out why it happened in the first place. And we couldn't. We have not identified the cause of the sterility crisis. And that was the worst part of it. The scientific method has been effective every time it's been tried until now, because we haven't figured it out. That notion that knowledge exists for us to impose our will on our surroundings is near to the cause of the crisis in the first place, at least in the author's mind, maybe not literally in the plot, but I think the author wants to give off that impression. Do you think that she's pointing to things like contraception and sort of like controlling fertility? Or do you just think in general, it's like trying to have too much control and this is God's punishment? I think if you were to ask her that, if I can speak for this, 
<laughs> this author that I just now learned about. I, I think she would probably say that contraception is related to it because, you know, in, in the book, the government has these pornography centers and she talks about the separation of sex from procreation, almost in language that we would recognize in Theology of the Body or Humana Vitae. Mm. So I, I think she is, she would largely be on the same page there. I don't know if she would put that contraceptive mentality at the root of the problem or if it's just a symptom. But I think she would say that it is part of the problem at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. Which is for a book that got the Hollywood treatment, I think that's pretty rare for somebody coming from that point of view to gain yeah. that sort of circulation. Now, to be absolutely clear, none of that thematic content made it into the movie. <laughs> Very sadly. Not only did it not make it in, it sort of sadly was like, eh, whatever. It was like some random dude who is the father of the of the kid that has resulted. It's it yeah. definitely does not take any kind of interesting view on the source of, of the new fertility. One thing I thought that was interesting, she does name check Catholicism at, at least one point in the book, where she talks about the, how the crisis unfolded in, at first. And she said that although Every country on earth went infertile. The first ones to go infertile were the Catholic countries. Mm. <laughs> I don't know what to make of that. Oh, you know, I forgot about that. You're right. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure if she is trying to be more critical of Catholicism in itself or if she's critical of Catholicism as it was at that time in the 80s and 90s, where maybe she saw it as being similarly hollowed out to the Church mm. of England. And maybe she views that as closer to the source of goodness. And therefore, when it goes wrong, the world goes wrong. I don't know. But she she didn't have to say that at all. And she certainly did. Yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> and then one other thing I thought that was cool when she talked about the early crisis, she predicted a lot of health trends. And it showed to me that the 90s had versions of like today's health trends, to your point about like bro science and stuff like that. And <laughs> like different kinds of wellness. It sounded very familiar. And the Children of Men movie has been praised for its sort of anticipation of crises in like immigration or different world events. But I think the book has a lot more culturally trenchant like predictions that resonated a lot. And just the isolation of individual people and the when you can't have kids anymore, for instance, you know, people lose interest in sex, which is the thing that is happening now, not in a nearly as dramatic a way. Like people are still capable of having children, obviously, but fertility rates in the West and not even just the West in East Asia, too, are dramatically declining. And also maybe coincidentally with that uh, or maybe as a result, people are having less sex. So she's, she's on to something in 1992. Just on your note about control, the, the idea of the quietus, it's interesting in the book. It's actually, you know, that control idea, you basically being like, well, I'm done. And so I'm taking my own life because then I have control over how it ends. Yeah. So what the, what the quietus is in the book, when the elderly ostensibly of their own volition, but that's not entirely clear, ostensibly of their own volition, they, they say, okay, well, I have no more, I have no further reason to be here. I'm not of use to society. I'm going to participate in this mass euthanasia suicide thing. And in the movie, it's more of, you can order a box delivered to your house with some sort of kit that will assist you in a painless suicide. Yeah, it seems more like a passing quietly into the night. Yeah, right. There are very tangible ways to illustrate the fact that I feel like the central theme, especially in the book, is just the idea that like society has lost all hope for the future and because nobody's having children. And so there's nobody to pass things along to. Like, what's the point of preserving history? The thing that I found most interesting about it was, I mean, just how poignant the entire impact of not having children around. It's not just we've lost, you know, this sort of ongoing purpose for living. There seems to be a sort of like psychic impact on the day-to-day -day reality of society by the fact that there are no children. You said it right when you called it a malaise. That seemed like a really fitting way to refer to it. I think she has a couple of really interesting things. On the one hand, you've got people who are sort of trying to recreate the idea of children by 
like having christenings for oh, cats, gosh. Yeah. which I was like, oh, that's too real. That is like a thing that happened. I could just oh, maybe not the christening. <laughs> I could see Pope Francis's eyes going red, like he's just gonna bust into this this fictional world and set everybody straight because he he talked about that with pets last year. She totally foreshadows it, right? Or it's like people yep. elevated elevated their pets to the status of children. And he was a hundred percent right for the record. I stand behind my Pope. <laughs> and then there's the people who have these dolls that they sort of think are real children, but they're dolls. So there's like, there's a real psychic longing for children. There is. And that one was a tough one for me because I've seen it like nursing homes where mm. they actually do have something like that for comforting some of the elderly residents. Like they have dolls that the residents do care for. I think it's more common with dementia patients. It just illustrates how deep the wound is when there are no children. Yeah, exactly. And they sort of describe how there's a generation. I think the ones who were just a generation older than the last generation to be born, they had like very high rates of suicide because they couldn't have children. And that was what they had been looking forward to and anticipating. Yeah. And so I think that that's just a reality. I think that the book is hitting on a truth that children in the family matter. You know, I think that there's a lot of trends nowadays that certainly can make people feel like the family is being devalued. And she sort of speaks to the opposite that like there's a, a very real and natural value to the family. It's been very surprising to me how many random people I meet on the street who are like, oh my gosh, a baby! <laughs> so it's like people people love babies. I think that the, it's very real. That's one thing that I think both the book and the movie did pretty well is highlighting the absence of children. Especially in the book they talk about people miss hearing children laughing and crying. And they would keep recordings of just that because they realized how precious that was as an experience. And in the movie, they don't explicitly say it. But when they cut to credits at the end instead of like a closing song, you hear recordings of children playing. Oh, you're right, yeah. That felt like them trying to incorporate that theme from the book. Speaking of which, could we get some some presence of children on the call? If you'd like to, I mean, she's she seems perfectly happy and chill right now, so uh, you may not get any audio out there of her. She is. Okay, no audio right now. <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's, let's get back to it. Enough of this. Yeah. No more kids. You can make yourself known whenever you want, Vivi. <laughs> she just yawned. She's like, okay, <laughs> we'll do. Both the book and the movie do focus a lot on the, the loss of hope. In the movie, I think it's more outright despair. Everything is violent and miserable all the time. And if the jackbooted government thugs don't get us, then the, the Mad Max, you know, road pirates will, will get us. Highwaymen, road pirates. <laughs> what the heck is road pirates? <laughs> You know what? I wasn't even going to call you on it. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Hmm. I feel like the movie just has a much more pessimistic view of humanity in general. Yeah. There's a lot of subtle nods to Christianity, but there's some interesting commentary about religion in this world as well. Yeah. This book approaches, again, it was written in 1992. It, it approaches Christianity from a very post-Christian perspective. The main character is an Oxford rationalist who specializes in Victorian history. Like he understands and views it from a very smug distance, England's Christian history. Like he knows all the parts of the old. The Book of Common Prayer, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, it sort of sounds like the American version of, yeah, I did 12 years of Catholic school. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's not really surprising to him when somebody is like sincerely Christian. But he's always like, yeah, okay, I've seen this before. Like, okay, let's get the spiel over with. Because, you know, he talks about the sort of their version of televangelists who have seized on the sterility crisis and have either chalked it up to God's wrath or just saying, we all need to love each other. And he's not really buying either variety. And, you know, rightly so, because those are very cardboard, cartoonish portrayals of Christianity. So it's cool that the book addresses that first before presenting its more sympathetic, maybe even recommended view of Christianity. The book ends with him baptizing the baby. The last words in the book are the sign of the cross. 
And like the two parts of the book, it's part one, Omega, because the last generation to be born, they're called Omegas. And then the, the part two is Alpha, when it's revealed that there's a new baby that's going to be born. So Alpha and Omega, Christianity is clearly a, a major concern for the author. But approaching it in this sort of roundabout way feels very fitting for the time. Yeah, it's interesting because she's both direct about the Christianity because Julian is Christian and like is the one who requests the baby to be baptized. And yet at the same time, I feel like the Christianity is all sort of light in the sense that like Julian and Luke aren't trying to evangelize anybody. Like they're not in anybody's face or trying to convert anybody that they meet. It's simply that they are Christian and that is a sort of fundamental operation underneath the surface. Yeah. The operating system, if you will. I've been spending too much time. I work in tech, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) She names the baby after the father, Luke, and after Theo, who she's fallen in love with by the end of the story. So his name is Luke Theo, I guess, which I think is meant to be an intentional nod to St. Luke, the evangelist who was writing the gospel in the Acts of the Apostles, and it was addressed to Theophilus. So Luke, uh, Theo, I think there's something going on there probably. That's also, clever. Luke was some kind of physician, wrote the most about the nativity story, especially from Mary's perspective. There's something going on there. Can we talk for a second about how weird it is that Julian likes Theo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was kind of... Theo is a thoroughly unlikable character. Even in his pseudo change of heart, I'm not going to call it a conversion. He's bitter, he's judgy, he's elitist. He's like, he's just a bad dude. (laughs) (laughs) He's not like an unenjoyable character. Like, he is your narrator. And I actually found the book to be extremely enjoyable. Like, it goes really fast. I feel like once you get past kind of like some of the opening exposition... But I would not say I came out of it being like, yeah, Julian, you should totally go for Theo. I had a lot more like weird, like teacher student vibes. Like she took one of his classes. The guy doesn't do anything to really recommend himself to her. Like, why did she at the end actually be like, I'm in love with you? I'm like, what? It makes no sense of either from a sentimentality perspective or sense (laughs) perspective. Yeah. Maybe it's just slim pickings. She doesn't have a lot of other options. I don't know. That was my only, like, very questionable, like, sort of narrative choice. I'm like, really? Theo? I think it's more enjoyable when you don't even try to like him. Yeah, definitely. We got to stop talking about the children of men and make some more time for the child of Kara and Jason. So, (laughs) okay, we'll, we'll see you later. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help this podcast grow, feel free to share it with your friends. Leave us a review on the Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you. <laughs>